0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. Father, indeed, we we are gathered because you have set us apart to yourself. We are the sanctified ones in Christ Jesus. And while we claim nothing to ourselves in terms of what we have accomplished or we have performed, or even what we have come to understand. We do rejoice that you have done such a marvelous work, not just for the sake of the creation that you love so dearly, but for the sake of your human creation. And even more particularly, Father, I pray that each one of us is truly grateful for the grace that you have poured out, the love that you have made known to us by your Spirit whom you have given to us. To be raised up in Christ Jesus and seated in the heavenly realm in him To be sharers in His life, to be a part of this community that is the fullness of the One who fills all in all, to be set apart and commissioned and empowered, to be the instruments of Your authority, of Your grace, of Your power in the world. Father is an infinite and an infinitely humbling calling. Forgive us that we are so easily distracted. Forgive us that we regard you and our Lord in whom our life exists that we regard you so lightly. Father, forgive us that we are so often well-content with triviality, well-content with being infants. I pray that you would give to each one of us a true and a living and an undying zeal, that we would truly be those who are committed in all things, To be faithful to the calling that is ours in Christ. To be faithful in striving to grow up in all things into him. In sincerity, in truth, genuinely, fervently. And that that would be our motivation with one another. That we would truly labor to see each one complete in him that that would preoccupy our days, our hours, our thoughts. Lord, as Nathan said, there are many things in this world that distract and capture our attention and preoccupy us and disturb us and cause us to be downcast and fearful, discouraged, discouraged. And it seems particularly in these days, in these times, not just in our country, but even in this congregation as we face all sorts of difficulties of of sickness and weakness, infirmity and struggles of, of body and mind, we pray that you would meet us with your grace and that we would draw deeply from the well of your spirit and the life that is ours in Christ. Father, make us a people who truly bear his fragrance in every place. A people who are evident to all who observe that we are indeed disciples of Jesus the Messiah. I pray that you would give us a clear, glorious sight of him this day. And that as we gather in worship, And that Christ sits at the very center of our worship, that you would make much of him in our hearts and our minds in this time. Father, enable my speech, enable my thought, and enable the hearing and the discerning of each one who is here today. May this time of exalting Christ contribute to our transformation in him. That is our destiny. May that be our true longing. So we give you this time and we pray that you would meet us in it. As in all things we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we return again to Hebrews, we're going to be entering into chapter 10 today. And we've seen how much time and, and energy the writer has given to this uh, priestly ministration of Jesus in contrast to the, the Levitical ministration that preceded it. And he sets that contrast out uh, primarily in, in two regards, the uniqueness of that ministration and also its efficacy And we've seen both of those things working together. He's a unique priest in that he is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But there's also an efficacy to his ministration that sets him apart from the priest that preceded him. And here's kind of a, a central idea that the writer puts forth. Jesus presented himself... Not some other sacrifice, not some other mediation, but he presented himself as a sacrificial offering in that final consummative work of the cross, but really from the point of the incarnation forward. Jesus' life was defined by this self-giving unto the Father's purpose. But at Calvary, he dealt conclusively with this issue of human sin, alienation, Death, Not just respecting the people of Israel, but respecting the whole human race and ultimately the whole creation. Romans 8. A creation that itself is appointed in the day of Christ Jesus to enjoy its own renewal, its own participation in the redemption that has come in him. And the author, and this is going to become more evident uh, as we move into chapter 10, But the author of Hebrews has also shown how that priestly work of Jesus, even in the contrast with uh, the Levitical order, was was itself a part of the outworking of God's purposes. It wasn't a separate, abstract, arbitrary sort of thing. It actually constituted God's faithfulness to his purposes to his revealed and enacted purposes throughout the salvation history. Those purposes that were bound up in in the covenant relationship that he shared with Israel, beginning with Abraham. What came in Christ himself was the great testimony of the faithfulness of God. God would keep covenant. He would keep his promises to Abraham. And so both Jesus' person his ministration and certainly his death and resurrection, but all of that, his coming into the world, was the divinely ordained climax of the salvation history. Not just an addendum added on, but the actual intended climax of the salvation history that once again had Israel and its relationship with God at the very center. Jesus coming and work, as he said, even as he began to interpret himself to his own generation, beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he prefaces that by saying, Don't begin to say to yourselves that I came to abrogate the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abrogate, but to fulfill. The way in which Jesus was perceived was that he was a man who was setting aside Moses. He was a man who was setting aside the prophets. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah because certainly the longer that his ministration carried on, they did not see in him what they had expected the Messiah to be and do. And so he understands that what he's presenting to them in his person, in his words, in his works is going to force them to have to rethink everything. It's not that God is untrue, it's that they have misunderstood. They have had a wrongful expectation of what exactly this messianic work and kingdom, what they were going to look like. He did not come to alter or to abrogate Israel's salvation history, the law, the prophets, the writings, but to fulfill And so just as Israel itself served a preparatory, a pedagogical role, a prophetic role in God's purposes as the Abrahamic people, so also it was with the law of Moses, the covenant that defined and ordered, governed Israel's relationship with God. We don't often think about that, but I mention that because the scriptures are very clear that the law itself was prophetic. It wasn't one scheme that God says, okay, we'll try something else. We'll set this aside. We tried that. That didn't work. We'll set it aside. And maybe we'll get back to it in the future, but we'll try something else. The law of Moses itself, the covenant with Israel, which itself was the corporatizing of the Abrahamic covenant, it, it was a pedagogue, Paul said. Go back and think about Galatians 3 again. Why the law and the salvation history if God's purpose was always through the promise to Abraham? Why the law 430 years later? Because it served the cause of the promise. It didn't work in a different direction. It wasn't antithetical or an alteration in any way. It served the cause of the promise. It was a pedagogue until the time would come when the seed promised to Abraham would come until, as, as Paul puts it, until faith came. It was a pedagogue in that sort of a sense. And that's the idea that the writer has in mind by his transitional statement that, that begins chapter 10. I want to back up to verse 22 of chapter 9 just to again kind of set this context for us. And I know I say it all the time, but I'm going to say it again. I hope as we continue to move through Hebrews that you're continuing to read and reread and reread. We come to the end of this intricate and in some sense complex but very majestic epistle with the writer saying, I hope you'll bear with this brief word of exhortation. It was intended to be read and in a certain sense ingested and and metabolized as a unit. And we obviously can't do that. But we don't want to again do the Plato machine thing and have if something gets pushed in this ear, then something goes out that ear. We want to try to recognize that the writer is building a case here. He is building an argument. And so this isn't just a one week on, one week off sort of thing. And I encourage you to try to steep yourself in his argument and his ideas uh, to get a a more full orb sense of these uh, of this content and, and the argument that he's making to these readers. But chapter 9, verse 22, he says, According to the law, and he's talking about, again, the law of Moses, Israel's covenant, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, which is to say a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Again, drawing on the Yom Kippur ritual and imagery. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so Christ also, the man Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time with respect to salvation without sin. Then he inserts the word without reference to sin, but it's not even in the text. Sin as having been dealt with, sin as having been done away with, to those who eagerly await him. For the law, since it is a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would have no longer any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book, it's written of me. I've come to do your will, O God. Now, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I I have come to do your will. And so he takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, the will that the one comes to do, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus, the Messiah, once for all. Now, obviously, there's a, a huge amount in that. But some of these ideas, and and even the way in which the writer's thinking about them, should be familiar to us. Uh, So I want to try to uh, chew all of this off today. But I've titled this, taking that that statement of the quotation from the psalm, Behold, I Come. And, And subtitling that, Shadow Yielding to Substance in the Messiah. Shadow yielding to substance in the Messiah. And I want to treat this just in terms of two parts. Shadow yielding to substance. The law as shadow and David as shadow. Now the two are blended together, but that's the way that I want to separate them in order to be able to treat them. So the first thing that the writer does is he says what ought to be obvious to us by now, which is that the law functioned as a shadow. And that's really the key to understanding its insufficiency, its inefficacy, if you will, because that's what the writer is saying. There was a lack of efficacy But this shadow idea is the key there. And here what he's specifically focusing on with respect to this idea of the law is the priestly ministration on which the law or the covenant was founded. Remember, again, the writers already said that Israel's covenant, the law of Moses, was founded on the Levitical priesthood. And that's why when there's a change of priesthood, which he argued, Jesus is a priest of a new order. He couldn't have been a Levitical priest, he's of the wrong tribe. A priest according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, probably the most commonly cited scripture in the New Testament. A change of priesthood brings a change of law or a change of covenant. So, but what he specifically focused on here is the priestly ministration on which the law was founded, on which it depended, and he is talking about the failure of the law. But it's important to recognize that the failure of the law was actually its complete success in terms of accomplishing its purpose. There was a failure associated with it, a very clear one that the writer speaks of, but he wants his readers to understand that that was intended. The failure of the law was its success. The fact that the law could never, by the same sacrifices, uh, bring the worshiper near, it could never deal with the problem, was by divine design. The law was a pedagogue. It served a preparatory role. And he says, you know, it's obvious that that was the case, that it failed in the sense of the perpetuity of the sacrifices. If it actually accomplished what it spoke to, he says, then wouldn't those sacrifices have stopped being offered? Very easy, logical argument. If they actually accomplished their end, then would they have not uh, ceased to be offered? But there are the same sacrifices year by year by year. And specifically, again, he's talking about Yom Kippur, the, the high epitomizing consummative, uh, priestly mediation on the basis of the covenant people and the covenant house, uh, the covenant itself, the covenant, uh, all of the, the things associated with Israel's covenant relationship with God. But secondly, and even more so, he says that its failure is seen in the consciences of the worshipers. Their consciences are never set free. no matter how meticulously, no matter how perfectly an Israelite carried out the provisions of God under the law of Moses, according to the priestly system, the minute that he went away from that sacrificial offering and began to consider his own mind again, he would realize that that issue had not really been dealt with. There was never the liberating of the conscience. Any sense of cleansing would disappear the moment a person would again begin to engage with his own mind and heart and conscience. No outward ritual can touch the inner life. The law could not secure... What was it seeking to secure? What was the law of Moses about? It defined and it prescribed Israel's sonship. Israel was monogonase, only begotten son. Israel's my son. Let my son go, right? And the covenant defined the relationship of sonship, father and son. It defined and prescribed Israel's sonship. And the law could not secure that sonship that it spoke of because it's it's in an essential relation. It's not a title. It's not a birth certificate. It's in an essential dynamic of the inner man in relation to God himself. That's why, again, uh, that quote that I read a couple weeks ago, where Torrance says that the very, that what sin is, the very essence of sin, is the violation of man's relatedness, his relationship with God at the very uh, innermost part of his being. Because the truth of man is this intimacy, this intimate union in the spirit that he enjoys with God. Man is image bearer, image son. And so sin in the first instance is a deviation, a violation at the level of that inherent relatedness between man, the image bearer and the God who created him. And the provision of the law could not secure that sort of sonship, nor could it even deal with the violations to that. But once again, importantly, this was by divine design. The failure of the law was its success. The covenant and its provision were a shadow. The purpose of a shadow in the biblical sense is to indicate the existence of a corresponding substance. Wherever there's a shadow, there's a substance, right? Nothing doesn't cast a shadow. Where there's a shadow, there is the reality somewhere, right? It may be 10 feet back or 1,000 feet back, but a shadow is only cast by something that actually exists. Where there's shadow, there's substance. So a shadow indicates the existence of a corresponding substance. Here the writer calls it the good things to come. The good things to come. And the shadow traces out the shape of the substance. It's not the substance, but it corresponds to the substance in the sense that it traces out its shape and form. That's at the heart of how the law of Moses was a pedagogue. Well, now with the coming of the Messiah and the outpouring of the Spirit and this this work of rethinking and and transformation of understanding a new mind, a new life being lived out in Christ, these dynamics had now been made clear. But they were woven throughout Israel's scriptures. It was never in doubt that Israel's covenant was non-ultimate. And if Israel would have known their own scriptures, they would have known that. Jesus comes into the world and he says, all of the scripture testifies of me. Remember how Luke ends, oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets said. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed them all the things in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus said, if you knew the scriptures, you would know me. All of the scriptures Testify of me. That was true of the ten words, the Decalogue, as much as it was true of the law of Moses, as much as it was true of the Pentateuch itself. And I mentioned the Pentateuch because in the Hebrew reckoning, Torah refers to specific dimensions of law, but also Pentateuch. Pentateuch is Torah, right? Law, prophets, writings, Tanakh, Torah, Nevi, and Ketavim. Law, Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And you see that even in, in Paul, where Paul says to the Galatians, you who want to be under law, why don't you listen to the law? He doesn't quote from the Decalogue. He doesn't quote from the law of Moses in the sense that we understand it. He quotes from Genesis, You who want to be under law, why don't you listen to the law? Remember Hagar, remember Ishmael, remember, right? Galatians chapter 4. Israel's law was ultimately all of their scriptures, but all of that testified to the Messiah. And so it was obviously the case with the priestly ministration. The writers already made much of that. The whole Levitical order was itself... Christocentric, it testified of the Messiah and the work that he would do. But here now what he does is he turns back to the scripture to make that point, specifically with respect to the sacrificial nature of the priesthood, the sacrificial aspect of it. Psalm 40 So the insufficiency of that sacrificial system, just to kind of sum up where we are so far, that insufficiency of the sacrificial system was proof that it looked beyond itself, unless we're going to concede that God failed. If God did not fail, then that failed sacrificial system, that system that could not accomplish what it spoke of, looked beyond itself. It looked beyond itself. But again, Israel's failure was grounded in, in an essential deviation of the inner man. It wasn't God said, I, it wasn't that God said, "Do this," and they didn't do it per se, although that obviously happened. But the issue of the failure of the law was this inward, essential alienation that you see throughout the scriptures. I've said it so many times, God treated Israel's lawlessness, their covenant violation, as relational infidelity, adultery. Israel is a harlot. Zion, the harlotress wife, has born harlotress children. An ox knows its Master, right? A donkey knows its manger. But my people don't know me. I've reared sons who don't know me. They don't know me. The issue was that father and son, for the covenant to be fulfilled, father and son needed to be reconciled in a true and a fully intimate communion of heart and mind. And I'm saying all that leading into this psalm because it's it's an important foundation. The issue with Israel was not you broke rule number four, rule number 23, rule number 68. It's that this covenant defines and prescribes your sonship and you have violated it. And indeed you are incapable of being a son to me because you are alienated from me. In the very essence of your being. Cut off from the life of God, estranged from Him. The covenant son needed to become Im- Im- image son. Israel needed to become what the covenant really define them as. And so my point is that God's goal, again, was not conformity to a moral and ethical standard, but the realization of his purpose revealed already in Genesis 1 and throughout the Old Testament. The purpose of God that has his human creature at the center is that God would fill the world with his presence and administer his lordship his wise and loving lordship over the works of his hands through his image children, through the creature that he created in his own image and likeness. That was God's purpose. Not to see if he could make people that could keep a laundry list of a to-do lists. That wasn't the point. Israel could never fulfill that vocation and no conceivable sacrifice could remedy it. God would have to arise and bring life out of death. This is the constant drumbeat of the prophets, right? Think again about Isaiah 59. God, through his prophets, promised that he would do that. Think about Ezekiel 36, 37. Son of man, can these dead bones live? This, these dead bones of the whole house of Israel. Is the Lord too deaf, he can't hear? No, your sins have created a chasm between you and him. Your iniquity, your bent has turned him away so that he will not hear, but he will arise. He will do, he looks and he sees there's no man, but I will arise and I will put on the helmet of salvation. I'll put on the breastplate of righteousness and I will come. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from iniquity in Jacob. Arise and shine, for your light has come, right? Isaiah 59 and 60. God had promised that he would do this work, but the exact way in which this would take place remained a mystery. Yes, he associated this covenant renewal, this this, uh, fulfilling of his purposes in the world, manifested through Israel's calling, manifested through Israel's covenant, the scriptures themselves connected that with this messianic servant who would come, the son of David, a royal king, and also a priestly ministration associated with that royal king. But the scriptures didn't connect all the pieces together in a way that answered all the questions. That awaited the coming of the Messiah. But a key piece of that, again, as you move through the salvation history, is that once David comes into the picture, he becomes a preeminent piece of the puzzle of the Messiah and the Messianic work and God's purpose for the world, what this will actually be about. So that leads us into then Psalm 40, verses 5 uh, through 9. And then we'll conclude today with kind of a a closing couple comments in, in verse 10. So this section I've titled David as shadow. The law was a shadow and in the same sort of way, the same dynamic, the same purpose, David himself was a shadow. Now throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer's drawn on several Psalms. We've seen that to make his case concerning the Messiah, his person, his work. Here he turns to Psalm 40, a Psalm of David, like Psalm 110. And I just want to say again, and hopefully we're all on the same page with this already because we've been through it so many times going through Hebrews. But the writer's interpretive approach is not to say, hmm, I want to talk about Jesus sacrificing himself and I want to prove that somehow this, you know, that was something that the scriptures talked about. Oh, I know Psalm 40 mentions a body you prepared for me. I've come to do your will. Okay, I'll, I'll cite that. He's not cherry picking verses on the basis of, of a statement that matches an idea in his head. That's not what he's doing. He's, in fact, when we look at this psalm, it's very hard to see how it's making the case that he's arguing that it's making. First of all, again, because it's, it's a psalm that is very personal to David's own life and experience. It has three main sections, and, and I won't read the whole psalm, but you, you can kind of flip back there or look at it in your own time. But the first section involves Uh, David's thanksgiving, his praise to God for God's merciful deliverance. God has delivered him in his afflictions, in his suffering, in his persecution. And then the middle section, which the, the writer of Hebrews draws from, has David stating his commitment to serve Yahweh as a faithful servant of his will. And part of that is that David will be faithful to proclaim the Lord's works, the Lord's excellencies in the congregation. David's commitment to be a faithful servant, to fulfill the Lord's will, the will for which the Lord has raised him up. And then the last part is David's plea, but a confident plea, an assured plea, for the Lord's continued care in provision, in deliverance. His troubles aren't over. But he celebrates what God has done and acknowledges it and praises God for his deliverance. And he restates his commitment as a worshiper in that sense to, to uh, bind himself, devote himself to God's will. And then thirdly, his stated confidence in the form of a plea that God will continue to support him, to support him in the sense of hold him fast, to deliver him, to preserve him through the things that he's enduring. Now, we don't know for sure, but... Many scholars believe, and I think it's probably true, that the context for this historically, it reflects David's season when he was fleeing, when he was being persecuted by Saul. That season of his life where he was under heavy persecution, he was hiding, he was running, Saul was trying to take his life, and the Lord kept delivering him. And if that's the case, this is set in the interval between when David was anointed as the Lord's king and when he ascended the throne as king. And that's important. Remember, Samuel anointed him prior to this whole long episode with Saul. So the whole time he's running from Saul and his men are saying, now's your chance, take him out. And David's saying, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. All of that is occurring with David already aware that the Lord has chosen him out and anointed him as his king. So David's uh, uh, suffering under the threat of death was situated within God's sure promise to him. That's what underlies this confidence that you see. God's promise of what? That he is god 's king, and not just the guy that 's going to sit on the throne of Israel in, in you know some kind of arbit- arbitrary or, or worldly kingship, but that he is the one through whom Yahweh will carry out his reign in Israel. This takes you all the way back to the time of Moses, where there was the promise that in the future there would be a king, and in fact, even the promise to Judah necessitated that there would be a king, right? Yahweh is king in Israel, but he had made it known very early on that at some point his intent was to carry out his reign through a king that he would raise up. The whole messianic thread that runs through the Old Testament, the regal side of it, that's why it comes to rest on David in the way that it does. David understood at the point, if, that, if that, this is the context for this psalm, at that point, David understood that this, this calling to be God's king, to execute God's rule over his covenant household, that promise held him fast. Yahweh had raised him up to shepherd his people Israel in his name and for his sake. And that's the context in which David speaks of his coming and his preparation. His coming and his preparation and his commitment to God's will. As a man who has the Lord's Torah written on his heart. And once again, we have to understand law as Torah. It's not I've memorized a list of commandments. Torah is God's revealed truth to men. That's why ultimately Jesus is the embodiment of Torah, right? He's the Word made flesh. But Torah is God's revealed truth to men. And David speaks of it as graven on his very heart. This is the context in which we understand this idea of behold, I come this preparation that you have put in place, a commitment to God's will. And once again, this is the section that the Hebrews writer is drawing from. So that's the first observation. Is just the general context of the psalm and, and specifically what that does in terms of the citation that the writer of Hebrews draws on. The second thing I just wanted to mention quickly is this statement of David that can seem troubling David's assertion concerning sacrifice and offering that God doesn't desire it and he doesn't like it. And yet the writer of Hebrews even said, these things are offered according to the law. What's his point? These are all things that God prescribed. God devised them and he prescribed them. And yet David says, God doesn't delight in them. He finds no pleasure in them. Well, you know, the easy answer is to say, well, what, what the issue is, is hypocritical, cynical, self-serving worship. That's what God rejects. And certainly, I mean, there, there, that was very much the case with Israel. If you look at just even the book ends of the book of Isaiah end with this same, this, or, or begin in the book begins and ends with this same dynamic of God hating Israel's sacrifices. He says, what what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? You already have a hint where he's going because he says, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom, give ears to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's essentially calling Israel and her rulers indistinguishable from Sodom and Gomorrah, who had long since been destroyed, right? Right? That's what you've become. That's the context for what are your multiplied sacrifices. To me, says Yahweh, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me new moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I can't endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. Once again, that Hebrew idea, chavon, iniquity is a bent away from him, a a disinclination, a, a deviation in the very being of the person, the very marrow of that person. God says, you're doing everything I said and you're doing everything exactly as I prescribed it and I hate it. it, makes me sick. That's the way the book begins and that's the way the book ends. And sitting within that is heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house you're going to build for me? What are you going to do for me? My hand created all these things and thus they came into being. This is the one for whom I'll have regard. The one who is contrite and humble and and trembles at my word. What word? I am he. I am the Holy One of Israel. I will come. I will arise. I will do it. I will put all things right. I will cleanse your uncleanness. I will bring life out of death. I will bring life out of death. So it's very clear that Israel's uncleanness made God hate her sacrifices, but that's not the point here. I'm not denying that that was an aspect of of why God would hate sacrifices and offerings or not desire them. But that's not the point that David is making here. And it's clear from the fact that the writer of Hebrews cites this in relation to what? The law is a shadow. The law is a shadow. David isn't here pointing to the failure of the worshiper, but the failure of the very system of worship. And not the failure of its implementation, but the failure of its intent, the fact that it's a shadow. God found no satisfaction in sacrifices and offerings in this context in the sense that they were non-ultimate shadows, his true pleasure, his true satisfaction looked beyond them to the reality that they foreshadowed, that they prepared for. So that's the second thing to observe is what is, what is the psalmist, what's David really getting at here? And why does the Hebrews writer draw on it with respect to sacrifice and offering? And then the last thing I wanted to mention is just if you've looked at this citation from Psalm 40, you see that there's an alteration in at least one significant way, which in the Hebrew reading of Psalm 40, it's ears you have given me and here it's a body you've prepared for me. Which is taken from at least one Septuagint tradition. There are other traditions that don't show this, but the Septuagint tradition that the writer of Hebrews had available to him and that he continues to quote from when he cites from the old Testament has this reading of a body you have prepared for me. And so in terms of that particular reading, David is connecting his fulfillment of Yahweh's will. What does he mean by fulfilling God's will? He means the divine purpose to which God set him apart. It's not just generically, show me your will, O God. You know, do I take this job? Do I marry this person? It's not that, let me do your will. It's David fulfilling that for which God set him apart, his purpose in God's purposes. David was connecting that fulfillment with the body that God had prepared for him. And it is, in some sense, very similar to ears you have given me. You prepared ears for me to hear, to be a disciple. But in the sacrificial sense, this idea of a body is more, more fitted. But the point is, is that God had fitted the man David for the work to which he called him. So David is acknowledging and praising God that God had ordained his life for a specific purpose. He would prepared him a body. He'd given him listening ears in view of his calling to shepherd his people Israel, to carry out God's lordship, God's rule over his people. Behold, I have come to do your will. That's the idea there in the context of the psalm. That's the lens through which David viewed his own suffering at Saul's hand. He'd already been anointed king. God had already said, this is the man after my own heart. Now, David wasn't yet on the throne, but all of his suffering was set in the context of that promise, that surety that God had marked him out for that work. And so God, in what David understood is that in in sustaining him and delivering him at every turn, Yahweh was showing himself faithful to his purposes for Israel. That had David at the center, his purposes, his promises to Israel. God was keeping covenant with Israel and David was written into the very center of that. That's how he, it wasn't just, God, thank you for being kind to me and coming to my rescue. He recognized God's delivering hand as God's faithfulness. God would keep covenant. And we know from our own knowledge of the salvation history that even once everything is gone and David's house and throne and kingdom are desolate and and everything is just wiped away, that promise of God to David that hearkens back to the promises to Israel and to Abraham are still continuing on. God will keep his word. He will do what he promised. In the words of Isaiah, he will keep his faithful mercies to David. David was confident that God would deliver, preserve, and establish him, even going forward as his king, because he knew, he knew, that God was committed to his will, first for Israel, but then through Israel to the world, ultimately to his whole creation. So the idea, behold, I come according to your revealed purpose, that's the idea of in the roll in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. It's the idea of behold, I come according to your revealed purpose. What the book has said concerning me, I come to do your will as your anointed king, having your Torah written on my heart. That's what the writer's citing from. Well, the obvious problem, it should be, it seemed like a problem to us, is that the writer is somehow using that passage, believing that it substantiates his claim that the law and the priestly system were a shadow of the good things to come. He's citing from Psalm 40, and specifically that section, believing that it substantiates his claim. Again, if you look, if you look at what he says uh, in verses 1 through 4, and then the transition to verse 5, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says. He's not changing the subject, and yet the psalm is setting out David's worship as the exertions of an informed and devoted heart and mind committed to carrying out God's will for him. And the writer cites it saying, see, this shows that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. This is why I tell you, when we go through these passages, you have to stop and think, what is the writer doing here? He doesn't explain. He assumes that his readers can make these connections in their own mind. The writer is not ignoring the psalm's contextual meaning, and he's not just plucking out a verse because it mentions a body being uh, you know, appointed for sacrifice. Oh, that sounds like Jesus, I'll cite that psalm. That's not what he's doing. He's not proof texting something. He's not ignoring the contextual meaning, but he understood that David was to find his own destiny, his own ultimacy, in this thing called the will of God, in the regal son covenanted to him. That's why, you see, once the Davidic covenant is in place, 2 Samuel 7, the prophets don't have a problem with referring to that son of David as David. It's the reason some believe that David's to be resurrected at some point in the future, you know, to sit on his throne again. Ezekiel 34, where where God is saying, I am done with the shepherds. They don't shepherd my people. They're unfaithful. I will arise. I will shepherd my people. And I will set David over them. David will be my shepherd. Same thing in chapter 37. When I You know, the two sticks, one for the house of Israel, one for the house of Judah. Can these dead bones live? When I revive the house of Israel and bring this house together, I will set over them one shepherd, David, my servant. The writer understood these things. And so that's the sense in which he ascribes David's words to Jesus. I don't know if you even noticed that. But therefore, when he comes into the world, who? The Messiah. He, the Messiah, says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but That's David's words in the psalm. How is the writer putting David's words into Jesus' mouth? Again, he recognizes the typological significance between them. All that was true of David was to become yes and amen in the Messiah, David himself, his life, his relationship with God. Now, obviously, he fell short, but David is the great prototype of this messianic figure to come. David's will or, or God's will for David that's recorded in this psalm is that he would execute his calling to be God's shepherd over Israel, that he would execute that faithfully. And once again, that takes you all the way back to Moses and the people of Israel when they're in Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab. When the day comes and you want a king, he's to be this kind of a man. I choose him. He's not to rule like other kings. He's not to acquire power and resource for his own, you know, the procedure of the king. He's not to acquire horses and wives and palaces and power. And he's to make a copy of my covenant. He's to make a copy of my Torah. And he's to keep it with him. And he's to read it every day. So that he will have Torah written on his heart. And he's not to put himself above his brothers. He's not to put himself above his countrymen. He's not to rule according to the procedure of the king. Moses gave that instruction to Israel before they even entered the land. And God's calling to David is is an echo of that, a man after my own heart, right? That's the kind of man that David's to be. And yet we know And David had the sense of that. You know, even from the point of his own calling, he understood that his his coming and his preparation were in terms of that will of God for him. This is the man after my own heart. Remember, Samuel goes down through all the sons. Must be him, must be him, must be him. No, all the sons of Jesse. Is there anyone left? Oh yeah, David, he's he's the last. He's out in the field. We'll get him in here. That's him. The man after God's own heart. David understood that and later, though, came to perceive that that will for God's king, the one who will be God's king, would find its true and lasting fulfillment in the son promised to him. That would be the son who would fulfill that Deuteronomic definition. David fell short of it. He admits it in the psalm. If you read through the psalm, I think around verse 10. My iniquities, my iniquities, we know David fell short of it. Psalm 51 is his great rehearsal of his lament because of the Bathsheba episode, the epitomizing procedure of the king. The procedure of the king, God says, whoever you pick, Israel, this is what it'll be like. He'll take your sons to fight in his army. He'll take your daughters to bake his bread and clean his palace. He'll take the produce of the land to fill his own table. He'll take what you have to serve himself. And I don't care who you pick. That's what he'll be like. That's the procedure of the king. And David, for all of his zeal and devotion to God, he nonetheless ruled in that way. Hey, there's Bathsheba. She looks good. I'm the king. Bring her to me. Well, wait a minute. She's got a husband. I don't care. Bring her to me. Well, now we got a problem. What do we do with him? Okay. We'll put him out in the front lines and then when, then draw back from him so that he's sure to die. It's good to be king. I can do what I want. And that's what Nathan confronts him with. Not just that violation, but David's failure to be son king as God ordained him to he was to epitomize Israel's role to manifest sonship to the world that all the nations would come to know God. And he didn't do that. Nathan comes to him and he doesn't say, oh, you committed adultery, though he did. He says, you've given occasion to the nations to blaspheme. You and your rule are to cause the nations to know the God of Israel because you rule in his name and authority. And instead you have ruled like the nations. You have lied against the God of Israel. You have lied against his rule. You've given occasion to the nations to blaspheme. And David's failure brought the ultimate end of his kingdom. We don't need to belabor that. We all know it. But through all of that, God's promise continued to stand fast. He would restore David's house and throne and kingdom. And David's calling and zeal for God's calling, behold, I come in the role of the book it is written of me, I come to do your will. Sacrifice and offering as it has been is not what you demand, but I will come in a way that will fulfill what those things spoke of. So David himself had come to understand and find all of his hope. The things that he confessed to God, the things that he pledged himself to, he eventually came to understand that all of those things, the truth of his own vocation and calling, identity, all of those things would be realized in the son that God had promised to him. So to close this out for today, then, David's life and reign prefigured his greater son. If we don't get that, then we don't even understand why the prophets keep speaking of David after he's long since dead. It's not that God's going to raise him up and set him on a throne in Israel. That's not the point. The truth of David is realized in the Messiah. David finds his own destiny, his own ultimacy. Just as Jesus embodied Israel as son, servant, disciple, and witness, so also he is the fulfillment of David's person and kingship and calling. He is the one in whom David would become David at last. We see in David a priestly king. David was the only king in Israel who could, who could offer sacrifices as a priest, and God was pleased with it. When Saul did it, God took the kingdom from him. When Uzziah did it after David, God struck him with leprosy. David brings up the ark to Jerusalem and enthrones Yahweh on Mount Zion, offering sacrifices, wearing the linen ephod. Because of his significance, typologically, he was a priestly king and he ascended the throne of Israel through patient perseverance in unjust suffering. That's what Psalm 40 is about. His all of the things that he's talking about, God, you delivered me, you raised me up out of the miry clay, you will deliver me, stand fast with me, your loving kindness, let it not fail. All of that is him looking at his difficulties in the light of God's promise to him. He had He ascended the throne. God's promise of kingship was realized to him through patient perseverance in unjust suffering when his men said, kill kill Saul, now's the time, he's in there going to the bathroom, perfect time. I won't touch the Lord's anointed. God will give this to me in his time. David didn't say, oh, you know, this is terrible, I'm going to die. He said, no, the Lord has promised, he will do it in his time. He will do it in his time. It was in that way that David fulfilled God's will to establish his kingdom in his son, king, a man devoted to his mind, purpose, and work, but all of that looked to the corresponding comprehensive counterpart in which those ideas and those things would be fulfilled. So Jesus comes. See, what the writer do, by putting these words of David in Jesus' mouth, he's saying that what the will of God that David bound himself to was never really realized. It ultimately looked to the one who had come, the son of David, and he takes those words in his mouth. Behold, I come in the the role of the book. It's written to me to do your will. That one and same divine will, Jesus fulfilled by his own self-offering. Now here he focuses on his death, but through his life as well. David lived the life of the man after God's own heart, or Jesus lived that life truly of the man after God's own heart. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My work is to complete that for which he sent me in every way, in every regard, in every word, fully conformed to the mind and the heart and the purpose of the father. And that's the sense in which he took away the first to establish the second. Now he's including the idea of of the covenant took away to, to uh, establish the second, but it's more than that. It's, it's, he took away that whole former order to establish a new order of things that's why paul deals so much with this idea of the age that was the age that has come the fullness of the times the consummation of the ages as the writer here puts it and with this i'm 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 done okay so what who cares this is all good this is good theology or whatever who cares the writer says remember he's writing to Christian Jews who are themselves suffering greatly. He's not giving them a theology lesson. He's not enrolling them in an online seminary course. He's trying to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. As they're wavering, people are telling them, you've missed it, it's the wrong Messiah. You need to return to Yahweh. You need to return to his Torah. You need to return to the people of Israel. He's trying to encourage them. Stand fast. And he says he took away the first to establish the second, such that in order that he would sanctify Yahweh's people once for all. And he doesn't say for all time or for all people or for all what, because it's just a comprehensive all. Once for all. And here's the way that you would literally read this. In accordance with that same will, what will? The will that David himself was bound over to, recognizing his own calling, his own vocation in God's purposes. In accordance with that same will, which was the divine will that Jesus came to fulfill as the true David, we now stand as having been set apart to God. In Greek, this is a perfect paraphrastic, and it simply means that we are in this state of having been sanctified. It's not talking about now because Jesus died, now we can start living, you know, godly lives as we see it, or moral lives or whatever. We have entered into his sanctity, and we're going to see this in the next chapter. Those who... Trample underfoot the Son of God, despising the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified, set apart. In accordance with that same will that Jesus came to fulfill, the will that bound David to God, we now stand as having been set apart to God. Well, what's the implication of that? Jesus has been distinguished and exalted as God's glorified priest-king. The writer keeps saying that, right? Over and over, up to this point. Jesus has been distinguished and exalted. His sanctification in that sense is, is that setting apart as God's priest-king, glorified priest-king. And he's telling his readers, by that offering of Jesus, by that consecration of Jesus, he grants that same sanctification and eternal destiny to all who share in him. If I've said it once, I've probably said it 50 times since we started Hebrews. Jesus' enthronement and glorification at the right hand of the Father is precisely his glorification as the resurrected, consummate, glorified man, the image son. And that's the destiny appointed for us. If we suffer with him because of sharing in his life, we're appointed for the same destiny. We will reign with him glorified with him, seated with him. That eternal destiny is what's appointed for us. And he's trying to encourage these, these um, struggling, wrestling readers with this. And I just want to read this to you. Um, again, coming back to Jesus' high priestly prayer, same sort of dynamic. He's trying to encourage his disciples who have no idea what's coming the next day And they're not going to be able to deal with it. It's going to rock their world. And he's trying to get them to understand what's about to happen, but not just what's about to happen, but what its purpose is and what it will mean for them. And so he prays to the Father and he lets them overhear his prayer. It's really for their sake, but he lets them hear it. But it's his words to the Father He says, I am no more in the world, but they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. The name which you gave me, that they may be one as you and I are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. The name that you gave to me. And I guarded them. I protected them. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak while I'm in the world that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because of that. Because they are not of this world as I have called them to myself out of the world, even as I am not out of the world, in the same way that I'm not of the world, they are not of the world. And I don't just ask for you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking that, but that you would preserve them, keep them from evil. That which would take them down. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. He's not saying help them to behave better. Take them up in yourself by taking them up in me. Sanctify them in the truth. Consecrate them. Take them to yourself in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them. As you sent me, I am sending them. We are Christ in the world. This isn't just about enduring patiently through suffering. This is about manifesting the Christ life, the reality and life of Christ in the world through patient suffering as he suffered. As you sent me in the way, as you sent me, I have sent them into the world. And it's for their sake that I sanctify myself. I'm setting myself apart for this work. Lo, in the role of the book it's written of me, I come to do your will. It's for their sake that I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I don't just ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in that unity, that the world may know that you sent me, that you love them even as you have loved me. There's how Jesus interprets his cross for them in order to encourage them. There's how There's what it means that this David comes and says, in the role of the book, it is written of me, I come to do your will, sacrifice an offering you don't desire, but a body you've prepared me. Aren't these glorious things? They ought to be. They ought to be. Well, let's close. Father, the the deeper we dive into these things, I I just... I can't understand how they could ever fail to not just completely capture our hearts and minds. That they would make us to be like hinds' feet on high places. That our hearts would be lifted above the burdens of this life, the burdens of this world. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we're called to suffer, not simply because Jesus suffered, now we have to suffer, but because the life of the Son of Man, the life of the true man in this world meets suffering. And as sharers in him, the suffering that he endured is the suffering that we endure. But I pray that we encounter and that we even rightly embrace and that we thrive through the difficulties of this life confident in that promise which you have vouchsafed to us. Not even just a promise recorded in the text of the scripture, but the promise that is the living promise of the indwelling spirit, the Arabone, who is the guarantee, Pledging the inheritance that awaits us, the resurrection of the body, the renewal of all things at the last day. The summing up of everything in the Messiah such that our God will be all in all. Father, let these things not fall on deaf ears or insensitive ears or bored ears. Forgive us that it's so easy for us to trivialize that which is infinitely glorious. Cause us to see with this power that has brought in new creation, cause us to see what Paul longed and grew with respect to, seeing the glory of the living God in the face of Christ. And that we would see that in our own faces and in the faces of one another. Beholding that glory is in a mirror, knowing that by the Spirit who is the Lord, we are being transformed into that same likeness from glory unto glory. What could be more splendid? What could we possibly want to go back to? What could possibly be more titillating or attractive or more preoccupying of our hearts and minds than that. That is the destiny for which we are appointed. Heirs of all that Christ is heir to. Father, glorify these things in our hearts that Christ would be glorified in us and in us and in the church and therefore in the world. He deserves to be infinitely regarded by his people at the very least, according to the truth of who he is. And may we be faithful witnesses in bearing that fragrance to the world. We have a rare privilege in our time with division and schism and fear and unrest and uncertainty. We have such a rare privilege to be able to truly be the body of Christ, to truly be the people of the new creation. What a testimony we have. What an opportunity we have. Give us grace to be faithful. Meet us in our weakness. Strengthen us in faith, courage, resolve. And may we not let go of one another, but continue to strive with one another, seeking to present everyone complete in Jesus the Messiah. That's our high calling. We ask these things, Father, of you with the confidence that is ours in him. Amen.